Luke chapter 4, verse number 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all that bear him witness, and all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would direct us through this scripture. May we at least have a fundamental understanding of what is taught here. May we grow in Christ and may our Savior be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now you may be seated. I don't know if they do it anymore, but it used to be in rich, respectable southern society. When a young woman reached a certain age, her family had a, a coming out party for her. There would usually be a large number of socially acceptable people, social equals who had come to the uh, uh, pillared mansion. And at the appropriate hour, the appropriate moment, uh, the daughter of the family, the debutante of the house, would be invited to present herself to the people. She would come down that big wide stairway. You've seen them in the movies. Pardon me. Uh, she'd come down that big wide stairway with her flowing gown behind her. And, and uh, she would be presented to those who might be her suitors a little later on. I'm misusing the phrase somewhat, but I would like you to consider Jesus Christ's coming out party. This is important to us because of the way in which it was done and because of some of the introductory comments that were made. The Son of God came into this world for the purpose of blessing you. Amen. As you know, Mary and Joseph were Nazarenes. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling a very important prophecy. Eventually, the little family returned to Galilee and Nazareth, and that was the place where Jesus grew up. In Nazareth, he learned to read and write. In Nazareth, he learned the skills of a carpenter because all the young boys learned what their father was doing. The childhood of Jesus was well known in Nazareth. And he was probably considered to, to be somewhat precocious as a child. I don't know if that's the right word. However, it's hard to say whether or not Jesus was actually liked 
by everybody in town. I wouldn't be surprised to learn someday that his holy meekness, even as a child, irritated the ungodly who lived around him. Later, Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, save in his own country and in his own house. He said, and think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. At God's appointed hour, after John the Baptist started his ministry down toward the south, Jesus made his way down to Bethabara to be baptized by John the Baptist. As he came up out of the water, God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And a little while later, John told his followers, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. From there, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where he went into battle against Satan, where he won a very decisive victory over the devil's temptations. And with all of that, we come to Luke chapter 4, verse number 14. And Jesus returned from the wilderness, from the temptation, from his baptism, in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. The word fame there in Luke means simply a report. It's a generic word. It can be positive. It can be negative. Depending on the attitude of the Galileans involved, some were very excited about Jesus of Nazareth and others were probably not very happy with what he was doing and saying. Jesus came preaching the same message as John. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just as it is or was with his cousin, there were mixed reactions to that. Most people don't appreciate being told that their personal righteousness is not sufficient for God, that they need to repent before the Lord. But the fact is, your righteousness is not pleasing to the Lord. Right. You fall short. Bronze medal, silver medal, definitely not gold. You can't, make, you can't meet that. But the people upon whom the Holy Spirit was working in the ministry of John, in the ministry of Jesus, accepting and believing what Christ was telling them, received the blessing of the Lord, received the salvation of God. But there was something else in Jesus' fame that was not to be found in the fame of John or the ministry of John. Christ, because of his deity, was able to break those natural laws that Brother Hogue referred to earlier. He was able to instantly heal the sick and the lame. And he changed ordinary things into extraordinary things, like water into wine. Very quickly, word began to spread throughout Galilee that Jesus of Nazareth is... Special, very special, whether they understood that or not. He was different. 
Also, as his custom was on the Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue of whatever community he was in. And as his fame grew, he was invited to read the scriptures. And in several places, we are told in our text, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. It was after his preliminary Galilean ministry that Jesus finally returned to his hometown of Nazareth. There, once again, he went into that very familiar synagogue. He had been there throughout his life, thousands of times. And every eye was on him because now there was a fame that preceded him on this occasion. Because of the customs of the Jews, it's not likely that Jesus had ever read the scriptures in the synagogue in Nazareth before. He was not a rabbi. He was not of the tribe of Levi. It was not uncommon for common Israelites to be invited to read the scripture, but before now, he, Jesus, had not been of a legal age to do that. Generally, the ministry of the word began at uh, the age of 30. Mary, perhaps the family of Jesus, had recently celebrated Christ's 30th birthday. Perhaps because of his growing fame, the ruler of the synagogue brought to him a scroll of the scriptures. He unrolled it to a particular spot in the book of Isaiah and began to read. And scrolling down a little bit farther, he went to another passage in Isaiah and finished up what he had to say. Then he sat down indicating to everyone that he was quite willing to explain the scripture that had just been read. He was ready to, to teach them, perhaps even to preach. Verse 22, And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Almost as important as the details of Jesus' message that day was the general theme. We're going to get to the details in just a minute. That makes up the outline for my message this morning. But the thing which first slapped those Jews in the face was Jesus reading Isaiah, concluding with, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. No Levite, no priest, no rabbi had ever said anything like that in the synagogue before. Jesus boldly, but with appropriate meekness, was essentially saying, I am your Messiah. I am the one Israel has been waiting for all these centuries. Later in this chapter we read, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of a hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went on his way. They were not pleased with what he had to say. They were at first. But when he made the application to himself, boy, that, uh, that was the end of things. All of this is historically accurate 
and important. But I don't want you to think of it only as a, a, an event in history. Don't think that it is so buried away in centuries that it has nothing to do with you. It most definitely does. What the Lord Jesus read and said about Isaiah 61, about Isaiah 42, most certainly does apply in the 21st century. This morning, I would like to take what Isaiah said and how the Lord used it here in Luke chapter 4 as a lesson for us in these last days. First, Jesus prefaced his declaration by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah said slightly more specifically, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The spirit of Jehovah is upon me. One of these days, we need to have some lessons on uh, the Trinity. This is not the day. At this point, I will just say, Jesus Christ is God. Yes. Always has been. Yeah. Always will be. Yes. He is God. But when the second person of the Godhead, when Christ became incarnate, taking up human form, some of the dynamics within the Trinity changed. Christ did not cease to be divine, and he didn't lose any of the attributes or the prerogatives of his deity when he took upon him human flesh. But he did completely put himself into the hands of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did, he did in complete agreement and union with the Father and the Spirit. Every Bible lesson, every miracle were executed in the power of the Spirit of God. At his baptism, the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove resting on him. He was anointed, he was ordained by the Spirit to carry out the eternal decrees of God in regard to the incarnation, the sacrifice, and what's necessary for our salvation. Specifically, Christ was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. In Isaiah's words, Christ said, Jehovah hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. As you know, the word gospel in the New Testament literally means the good news, good tidings. In Jesus' words, he came to preach the gospel to the poor. But in Isaiah, it says he came to preach the gospel to the meek. The other day, I was reading the testimony of a man who described his climb out of poverty. He began by saying that his family started out poe. They were so poe, they couldn't afford the last two letters of the word poor. I say that only to say there are different kinds of poverty. There are different degrees of poverty. Did Jesus ever preach the gospel of the rich and infamous? I believe he did. 
Never on those occasions, when there were a hundred people in front of him, did he send the disciples out to go through the crowd, and if they saw somebody in some rich clothes, tell them, you have to leave because Christ only preaches to the poor. You have to, you have to go away. That never happened. We are specifically told about several sinfully wealthy people who were reached with uh, Jesus' gospel message. Zacchaeus, Matthew were among those. Most likely those uh, few centurions from Rome who lived locally. They probably had a few shekels stashed away as well. Jesus' use of the word poor isn't speaking about the state of people's bank accounts. It's speaking about their hearts. The same way he uses the word in the Sermon on the Mount. As Isaiah said, The Lord hath anointed anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. There's no other place where the gospel will be heard and received except In the humble, submissive heart. I don't know if I worded that very well. The righteousness of Christ and the self-righteousness of man cannot coexist. They, They are mutually exclusive. There's a sense in which the gospel of Christ is not for you if you are rich and full of yourself. I mean, rich in attitude. It is only for the poor and the spiritually empty. A moment ago, I made a contrast between meekness and pride. Meekness and pride. But Psalm 147.6 points to a different contrast. The Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked to the ground. The good news of the sacrifice of Christ for sin will never be heard by humanity in general because of sin and the effects of the curse of sin. It has effect only among those who are humble and meek in the sight of God. Those who know that they are sinners. Until you see yourself as empty of anything that pleases God, You will never be blessed by the gospel. It is only to the poor. Never to the psychologically wealthy. Self-righteously wealthy. Jesus also told the Nazarenes that he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. As Isaiah put it, Christ was sent to bind up the brokenhearted. And just as it is with poverty, there are different kinds of brokenness, brokenheartedness. Sadly, in a great many churches these days, those different varieties are thrown into some sort of religious blender, and after a few minutes of tenderizing from the pulpit, a little bit of Christ is thrown in, and then all of this brokenheartedness is cured, no matter what kind it is. Jesus is not talking about the pain your girlfriend caused you when she said no. Christ is not talking about the grief 
that you experienced when your mother died or your doggy. Right. He's not talking about this kind of pain. For a year now, I have been collecting and reading testimonies from various Christians. They come from different eras, different strata of society. There have been men, there have been women. Some have been more emotional than others. But behind them all, they've had several similarities, including brokenness. Some fought the testimony of the Holy Spirit against them, inducing the Lord, I won't say forcing the Lord, encouraging the Lord to chip away at the rock-solid heart that they had. And then for others, the Holy Spirit came along and just crushed them. They were gone. And in their brokenness, in their crushed condition, they looked and saw Amen. the Savior. Christ came to minister to the broken. Yes. Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to save sinners like us. To save us from the wrath of almighty justice. But as both Isaiah and Jesus remind us, until we are broken, we have nothing in Christ. The Lord also said, I have been sent to preach deliverance to the captives. Isaiah expressed it as, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Let's say that in your youthfulness so many years ago, in your past, you did something and as a result were sentenced to 20 years in prison. Now you are four years into your 20-year sentence, filled with remorse and regret and a new respect for right and wrong. And you hear two announcements. The person you love more than anyone else in the world is dying. And you hear that the outgoing governor has come to your hometown with the intention of pardoning five people. Whoa, what a blessing. How you long to see your loved one. But there's no way for you to see her because you're in here and she's out there in a hospital. And as for the governor, he's standing on the courthouse steps while you're confined to your cell. You pray for a chance to plead your case before the man who has the power to release you. Oh, how you would love to hear the words pardoned, forgiven, delivered, set free. You yearn for those words. There's a reporter with a microphone stuck in the governor's face. Does that reporter have the same interest in those words that you have? It's just news. Christ came to your city for the purpose of proclaiming liberty to people just like you, no matter what your crime. Christ came into the world to set at liberty them that are bruised. Verse number 18. Set at liberty them that are bruised. That's confusing language, isn't it? Heal those that are bruised. Put salve on the wounds of them that are bruised, whatever. 
Perhaps Matthew sheds light on the idea as he editorializes about this same passage from Isaiah. Turn to Matthew 12. Verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against Jesus, how they might destroy him. Verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence. And a great, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive, nor cry, Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax he shall not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Doesn't this imply, among other things, that Christ's initial ministry was not to cause bruises necessarily? Not to make our pains more intense than they should already be. It's not my purpose, and it wasn't Jesus' goal during his ministry, to unnecessarily, and I'll stress that word, to unnecessarily make you miserable. You, as a sinner, you should already be miserable. Yeah. You should be on your face before God as a sinner. And if in the process of pointing out the obvious, you should see your poverty and your spiritual enslavement, and then should you feel the pain of that bruised heart of yours turning to Christ, there's a blessing. As Jesus said in Mark 2.17, they that are whole have need not have no need of the physician. Those that are sick, those that are bruised need the physician. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew tells us that judgment is coming and it is guaranteed, but that judgment can be turned into victory if in his name the Gentiles and the Jews repent. Trust Christ. What I'm trying to say this morning is that Christ has a ministry toward only a certain kind of people in this world. Not everybody. Until you see yourself as a captive, until you see yourself as a slave to sin, you have no claim upon Christ. It doesn't matter how society might describe your crime. Today's society may say there is no crime except trying to live a moral life under the principles of the Word of God. Today's society might not uh, condemn uh, anyone. But then again, maybe you've got that 20 years for carjacking or whatever, a murder. Maybe you're just a simple white-collar Bezler, rapist. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to proclaim liberty to those who know that they are captives and sinners. Christ's ministry and salvation are given only to the spiritually poor, spiritually broken and bankrupt. Christ came to deliver captives, not those who erroneously think that they are free. Jesus had a conversation with the Pharisees about this very subject. Christ came into this world for the purpose of recovering sight to the blind. Isaiah 42, 7 tells us that the Lord became incarnate to open blind eyes, to bring the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Brother Fulton, a month ago, six weeks ago, uh, shared an interesting fact with me. I don't know if anyone else caught it. He said that of all the people whom God used to work miracles, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Paul, anyone else, no one healed the blind except Jesus. I think there's a reason for that. It was prophesied that Christ would heal yeah. the blind. And when Jesus came along doing that, there should have been fingers pointed at him saying, this is the one who's been prophesied, healing the blind. It appears that this was a miracle which God withheld for his own personal use. It was a miracle which identified the Messiah because it was prophesied by Isaiah. The Lord Jesus blessed us in spectacular ways. He came to open blind eyes, to set at liberty them that are, are lost. He came to minister His Word to us, to set at liberty them that are bruised, recovering the sight to the blind, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord. What is that? I believe, as do most uh, scholars, I believe that this is a reference to the year of Jubilee. In Leviticus 25, I'll let you read that chapter later on. It's rather lengthy. We have a description of the year of Jubilee. There were three things, three primary things, which were take, to take place on the 50th year, again and again and again on the 50th year. One was that the people of Israel were to plant no crops and harvest no grain, not to take the, the fruit of the vine, trust the Lord to meet their needs for 360 days. And if they would do that, the Lord would bless them. The second thing was that those that were enslaved, because of debt primarily, each and every one of them were to be set at liberty. And the third thing was that if someone had been forced because of debt or whatever reason to sell their property, the man who bought the property would return it to the original family on the year of Jubilee. 
That's the way it was supposed to be. I don't know that Israel ever did that. There's no indication that they did. But that was the plan. And Christ came to fulfill the plan. Not only in all those sacrifices, but in this as well. He came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. But also, we're told in Isaiah, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and to preach the day of God's vengeance. A year of blessing, a day of God's vengeance. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of God. And the prophet John, also looking into the future, said, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. The Lord came to deliver blind men from their blindness. Captives and criminals from their prison. The spiritually poor from their wretchedness and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord followed by the vengeance of our God. The Lord came to deliver sinners from that death and that vengeance. Yes. Yes. And the people of Nazareth wouldn't listen. Oh, it sounded good to begin with. But when it actually came down to, again, the rubber meeting the road, they weren't interested in that. And it's been that way now for 2,000 plus years. It's still that way today. Why will you not listen what the Savior says? He has all of these blessings to bestow, and yet the vengeance of the Lord is coming. Without these blessings, the vengeance of God is there. I plead with you, humble yourself before Christ. Yes. Put your faith in him for deliverance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I know that to be true because I was that blind man. I was that captive. I was enslaved to those lusts that we heard about before. And the Lord in grace has delivered me. Amen. I know it's true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be that person. Won't you turn to the Savior this morning? Turn to the Savior. It was His purpose. That's why He came. This is the beginning of His ministry. This is why I'm here. He wants to bless you. Humble yourself before Him. and Receive His blessing by faith. Please stand.